So we're super excited to have Arjun Orion from Materialize. We're working on the fastest way to build the fastest data products. And we're the open source startup podcast. Tim at SNSBC and Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. So welcome, Arjun. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get started from telling us how Materialize actually gets started. Like who and for what reasons. Just give a little backstory. It's a surprisingly long journey to the starting of Materialize. My co-founder and Materialize's chief scientist, Frank McSherry, did a lot of pioneering research in stream processing and big data computation and distributed systems research. And at the time, I was a PhD student doing a PhD in big data distributed systems as well. I was a big fan of his research. And I I remember, you know, this is way back, way back before anything even happened with Materialize. It's 2014. I remember telling Frank, hey, you should commercialize these ideas. He was just very, very much not interested. So much so that I uh, actually ended up joining a different series based startup back then, uh, Cockroach Labs, with a company with under 20 people working on OLTP databases. And I very much wanted to do something entrepreneurial, work on the same area, distributed systems, big data but in an applied fashion, not in a theoretical academic setting. And it was at Cockroach where I kept harassing Frank. And eventually I harassed him for long enough that he just caved in and uh, decided to start Materialize with me. I think the genesis of how I came to be involved, because he had done so much of the building by himself, I was sort of a bystander on the side, was he got more curious. He was like, what What does a startup even mean? Like, what, what does one do? Like, what is a company, you know? questions like that. And I just kept explaining, explaining, explaining for days and days, you know. And at one point I was like, that just sounds so exhausting. I don't want to do that. It would sure be nice if somebody did that for the company. And so that was that was really how we came to work together. So that's how I find myself in the CEO seat, right? It's like all the things that Frank never wanted to do, put that in a box and that's my job. Awesome. And Tim gave a pretty high level overview of what Materialize is. Can you kind of walk us through who's the user for Materialize, what they use it for, the benefit, and maybe where it started and if it's changed at all to where it is today? Absolutely. I think we've stayed pretty consistent in what we've been building since the very beginning. Materialize is a way for data engineers and application engineers to build real-time experiences, be it an internal service that powers an application or a core application itself that has a real-time need. Today, there are many databases that help you build applications in general, but not those that let you build real-time data-intensive experiences, right? You sort of have this dichotomy of two kinds of databases. There's OLTP databases that are very fast to let you do basic things, CRUD operations on potentially, you know, lots of data, but those each and every one of those operations is pretty simple, right? It's like add to cart, check out cart, things like that. And on the other side, you have these analytics databases that allow you to do very powerful complex queries over massive quantities of data, as long as you're willing to wait. So you're going to get the data process once every few hours, or maybe even once a day, or less than that. Now, if you want to do something complex, like personalization in real time, when somebody's on your site, that often requires taking a lot of this data, running a complex query, and you have a relatively short time budget. And today, the only organizations that have been able to do Things like real-time personalization, real-time dynamic pricing are organizations like, say, Uber that does real-time dynamic pricing in the form of surge pricing by building a massive, complex, distributed stream processing 
microservices architecture just to calculate these things and serve them in real time. There isn't a database-like experience that lets people build those applications and experiences with the simplicity of just writing SQL. And Materialize was formed to allow application developers and data engineers to get all that power, get the ability to write these complex SQL queries that run its millisecond time budgets on top of these fast-changing data sets. While their lived experience is just writing SQL, there's a lot more people, a lot more organizations that have the ability to write SQL queries than they have to build, scale, maintain, and evolve complex distributed microservices. Thanks for the, actually the intro story. Frank definitely is sort of well known for his timely data flows or, you know, papers. I read it before as when I was an engineer as well. Walk us through how you actually start to explore this space. Because I think when you say we want to build the fastest data products, right? The first step is actually find out who needs this. What does fast right. data mean? Right? What are the right trade-offs to make? Because I'm sure every database has to take trade-offs, right? Right. Fast and scale and, and various sort of parameters here. Where do you start exploring first when you just start to materialize? And what have you learned to sort of morph your thinking, okay, this is the kind of database, how it should work. This is the kind of SQL we should support. So I think of a database as provides a developer with a lot of leverage, right? So they're able to get a lot done with relatively little work. One of the sort of quips we used to talk about in the past is there's a lot of teams that are, without even necessarily realizing it, building like half a database to accomplish a task without the resources or the time or the budget. And it's not, it's not like database engineers are these like superhumans. And then there's mortals who use databases. It's not that. It's it's like you could probably build a database if you had the time and the budget and the, you know, the database is roughly speaking, in my mind, sort of it's a $50 million project, right? Like with some integer multiple of that. And most teams are trying to build things, ship products, you know, help their users. And so in order to do that without the time horizons that it takes to build a database, you need a form of leverage, reusable tooling. And SQL databases are that leverage, right? So, so the trade-off you certainly can't express all computation, right? But for 90% of the computation, the heavy lifting, if you can get that done by a database, it also frees up your time and resources to really deliver on that remaining 10% that, that can't be done in a SQL database. So that's been my view for why databases have added so much value. There hasn't been a database or there haven't been mature stacks of tools to help people deal with real-time data until very recently. I have a point of view on why that's been the case, right? So I do think mature, scalable message buses like Kafka, that's a fairly recent innovation and that's sort of a prerequisite, right? Like taking advantage of the data, the prerequisite for that is just being able to move the data from point A to point B at scales, at sort of millisecond level latency. And that's sort of been the enabling technology that's really allowed the space to become much more widespread. The number of organizations today deploying Kafka to move data around, to build some simple microservices and to enable real-time experiences for their users, that's growing very fast. And one of the interesting things about Materialize is the use of a source available versus open source license. Can you walk us through that decision and why it made sense for Materialize? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we wanted to be very careful to never take anything away. So I think there's a lot of controversies with license changes with commercial companies. And most of that controversy has been because the community feels like they were misrepresented to. 
it was an open source project. There's a huge adoption. And it's like, oops, so we're taking the toys away. And now you got to pay us for this new license that we just came up with. And I have a great deal of sympathy to that, right? Like case by case, obviously each one of these situations is different, but there is something that we didn't want to go down a path of, we wanted to figure out the path to sustainable monetization from day one so that the deal, so to speak, was one that we could commit to with conviction right from the start. I had some experience with the, the business source license because we adopted that at Cockroach for Cockroach DB. The users liked it. It was a sort of seemed like an elegant middle ground where we still got to share the source. We still got to let people, but I, I do have a, there's many things about the open source model of building software that I really resonate with. One, I think it's extremely friendly to the developers, right? So all the engineers working at Materialize, this is actually really good for their careers, for their code to be open. It's uh, in many ways, you, you're post-interview after you've written so much code that anyone can see and look and inspect. It's also great for the users. Users really love the transparency. Even if they have always intended to be paid commercial licensed users, you know, they get to see if you're actually following up on that bug report. They get to see if uh, this is actually being prioritized or not in a way that uh, a closed source piece of software is just a sort of scary black box. I really sort of wanted to to get as close to that 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 as possible. But databases are capital intensive projects, and there always needed to be a very clear path to monetization. Some companies have addressed this by having an open core, right? So they have a true open source, say an Apache two license or an MIT licensed core, and then they have some uh, purely proprietary extensions. Now, the problem with this that I saw was what happens when a bunch of open source developers start building a competing version of that? Because everyone wants these, particularly when it's really annoying when it's like security features, right, that are being held back it's like or performance improvements. I mean, there's certainly some open source projects. I'll try my best not to name names where, you know, it's like the crappy scheduler is free. The good scheduler is proprietary. And I think that's pretty user hostile. So the source available journey was what we felt was the most aligned. I don't want to claim that I've sort of found the perfect middle ground, but I wanted to avoid any of these pitfalls. And I saw and so my prior experience with the BSL at Cockroach was that it was working pretty well and the users were pretty happy. And so that's sort of how we chose it at Materialize. It seemed our best guess at what was the most user-friendly. So I think related, you know, since we're talking about the license, it's also like your focus user or target audience is developers, I assume, right? Because I think yes. looking at your website, all these sort of user stories are all very technical users. They're talking about JDBC, they're talking about views. And when you talk about building faster data products, they may not be actually database engineers where people actually have a lot of database internal or the knowledge, it's gonna walk us through like who your target audience will look like and what are actually are like building and how much sort of knowledge do you actually have to understand? Because even though you just write SQL, it does seems like you need to have a little bit more understanding what's happening to know, okay, what's the pitfalls and what's sort of the the, the Absolutely. So I think as with all databases, what we want to tell you is any developer in any language, any framework, who can write SQL queries or wants to write SQL queries can be productive. And I think that's certainly true in the beginning. But this is a spectrum, right? Like you take any database or like say, take MySQL, a mature, certainly one of the simplest databases to get started with. You will absolutely encounter power users who will have very strong opinions about like the way you structure your index in order to get the best on-disk data layout for performance on this sort of queries, right? Like 
Databases, I think, do a pretty good job at a first cut of abstracting away these concerns. But for these sort of the users who have the highest performance, the highest complexity of task, you start to unplug from the matrix. You start to uh, have to understand a little bit of what's going on, what the data structures being used are, what the performance, the usage of implications of various usage patterns are. And we are no different, right? So occasionally, sometimes we have to sort of pull back the curtain and say, well, this is what's actually going on under the hood. And that's why this query pattern needs to be sort of slightly modified or things like that. So can you maybe talk about some, what are people building? on top of materialize. What are kind of products people actually build that before it really requires a lot of infrastructure, now materialize just sort of like, because one product exists here, now we can finally fix all our problems. Yeah, it's great. We have a thriving Slack community of a lot of developers and it's always sort of interesting. I think that my favorite ones are when people come to us and they show us something that they've built and we had no idea that that was even possible. I think that's one of the things that's really fun about databases is that they are general purpose tools and, and you're not gonna have anticipated any of these. I'll give you one example of one of our users, uh, Drizzly, using Materialize. Drizzly is a delivery app for alcohol delivery since alcohol delivery is regulated differently. You know, It's an alcohol specific delivery app, but they started using it. Their very first use case was for tracking sort of card abandonment. Now you can go and uh, purchase, there are fully verticalized solutions just to deal with card abandonment, right? It's like they got e-commerce. But the reason they came and were playing with Materialize is because they had a pretty specific way in which they had some DBT models. They have a pretty mature modern data stack analytics sort of practice using DBT Snowflake to build. And they had a pretty sort of nuanced objective of what they wanted to do, right? And they said, you know, this, this SQL query running on this Snowflake and this deep, or even more specifically, this DBT model, we want to take it from our analytics stack and put it into production. And this is where SQL becomes a real sort of value add, right? It is, you know, it's not copy paste. It's, it's never copy paste between two different databases, but it allowed them to map the semantics of what they wanted to do, which they had derived on the analytics side and put it into production much easier than it would have been to sort of rebuild this as a microservice, right? So card abandonment turns out to be a pretty complex join between two different streams of data, right? Like web events sort of joined against your OLTP database, right? Because add to cart's a web event, but checkout is an OLTP uh, transaction. That's much, much, much better semantics than the former. One of Materialize's superpowers is doing sort of joins between fast changing streams of data at low latency. And so that was a very neat bit. Yeah, it's interesting hearing now what some of the interesting use cases are that customers are using Materialize for. But imagine early on with any general purpose tool, especially one where you're kind of unlocking new use cases where developers just weren't able to do this before. Like, what were you trying to drive activity-wise early on? Like, because you could have people building, like to your point, databases for things that you weren't expecting. But early on when you just didn't know what developers were going to do, what were you trying to see? Were you kind of framing up like a certain level of company using it or for a certain kind of category of use case? Or what were you kind of thinking about in the earliest days? So I'll tell you a learning that I had. My earliest category of use case I think was wrong because I'll tell you why. In the beginning, we thought that the absolute best use for materialize would be people who are tearing their hair out, trying to build things on Kafka, right? So you have Kafka, Kafka this, Kafka that, you've got a bunch of different topics. It's just sort of tearing your hair out, going, how do I build? Like these microservices are falling over. These applications have very complex semantics. Wouldn't it be easier to just, you know, build these pipelines with SQL? 
and we had a tremendous amount of users who came in who had absolutely no interest or were not thinking about it in that terms whatsoever that were nevertheless doing stuff that was very cool, right? So they were building their core application using Materialize. Right? They were building actually new novel applications that were data intensive. And we sort of, we saw this and we kind of went, huh, this is not people building sophisticated data pipelines. This is application developers building incredibly awesome applications. Why do they even need Kafka? We had all, the, all these users who were like, and we asked them how they came to Kafka. And they said, well, because you need Kafka for the ingest. So I put in the Kafka and we're like, whoa, whoa, I'm, at first, I'm terribly sorry I did that to you. You shouldn't have to adopt another technology to just use the technology you actually want to use. So we sort of built this direct Postgres connector. So Materialize will connect directly to Postgres and just sort of tail the bin log and scrape the events. And that was sort of one of the, the things that we just sort of threw out there to see whether that would be viewed favorably by this persona. And yes, and absolutely, we had a whole host of users who were like, oh, this is fantastic. And in fact, we had some of our users who were using Change Data Capture and Kafka, like, so stripping that back out, being like, oh, this is such a relief that I can just sort of simplify my architecture, land all my events in Postgres using SQL, then do all my enriched complex reads from materialize using just SQL. I've got SQL on both ends. I've got nothing in the middle. This is so much cleaner. And that was, I think, not entirely straight journey from point A to point B to enable application developers. And so if people are using materialize, because I think one reason people are using Kafka is because they want to have sort of a central messaging place where everybody can consume multiple people with different concerns, might be batch, might be applications, might be various things can all use the same data. Do you want to become that layer to materialize becomes like a central no. message play and everybody can plays off? Or do you think, hey, you just want fast applications. We're the fastest path. You can use Kafka, but you don't have to use Kafka. Like it's, it's more of an optional. That's exactly right. So we have no interest in, in sort of becoming the Kafka layer, right? So the message queue layer. I actually think Kafka is a very great at what it does. Right? It moves data from point A to point B or many A's to many B's in a decoupled fashion, low latency, scalable. It's great. It's a great storage layer for your middleware. And similarly, we think of our superpower as being a really great compute layer, right? And I think the storage and the compute layers are very complementary and not really sort of apples to apples replaceable at all. And absolutely, the, the final thing that you said, it's purely optional, right? Like the larger, more mature enterprise you go to, absolutely, they want it standardized. They want this centralization. But when you're building something new, it's just overhead. So that's why sort of our view is, you know, in the fullness of time, mature life should just be able to pull data from anywhere because... Different people are going to make different architectural choices. I expect the vast majority of mature organizations will choose Kafka or a managed Kafka cloud solution. And uh, the mix of data ingested into materialized will look not dissimilar from, from the mix of data ingested into any other system, into Elasticsearch or into Snowflake. You know, we talk about like your open source is about a source available. Right, rather than actually a whole lot more people contributing to materialize. So obviously it's always hard to build a database, no matter what kind of database, right? You know, and what did you start to build an MVP of materialize looks like? Like what will be like the first version and we feel comfortable enough to get people to actually use it. And did you try to build an open source way everybody can actually look at it and give you feedback? Not real time, but like without having to wait for six months, everything is built out kind of fashion or you try to actually build to a certain points and let them use it to get feedback. Just wondering how that actually iteration process looked like for you early on. Yeah, so we had the advantage of building on top of the core compute layer of Timely Dataflow, which is a true open source MIT licensed project. It's uh, too strange, but it's, it's, it's a little bit like dealing with radioactive material. Like you, need, you need to be a professional to not hurt yourself. 
It's very, very high performance, but it's fundamentally a high performance compute layer that needs to be managed, right? Like most people who want to get stuff done don't want to use a raw data flow engine writing Rust programs that get inserted and build data flows. Although certainly there are people who do that for sure. We wanted to build the the acronym DBMS, the database management system. Like the thing that we felt was missing was the MS part, the management system, like the SQL, the parsing, planning, orchestration, metadata management, schemas, all of that stuff. And that was our first year of building was all of that from scratch. And we built that in private. I think you'll see this in most complex software projects. The number of committers who are committing 95% of the code is a small group of people. And our view was we have to employ all of these people because they're not going to do it for fun. They're going to do it as sort of part of their professional lives. And we built that MVP of the sort of SQL, the Postgres compatible SQL layer on top of timely data flow in a closed source uh, first year. And we took the wraps off of it and made it a source available project on GitHub. And, you know, we clicked that button, make public, and pretty much within a few hours, it was the number one on Hacker News. Obviously, can't predict that or plan for that. Obviously, a, a wonderful, wonderful day for us to see sort of the positive reception. But absolutely, that MVP, the, what we called the 0.1, was built by a core group of developers behind closed doors. So we like to ask about moments of momentum and when you really knew that things were working. So was there kind of a moment where you saw a certain amount of usage or usage around certain set of use cases or just engagement around the community where you said, okay, it's working. Like we've hit our moment of product market fit, call it. It's interesting. I don't know if there was ever one moment, but there was a moment where a few of us sort of, I, I leaned back and asked uh, one of my colleagues, like, this is a lot of users. Like, or I think it was a bug on GitHub. I think someone filed a bug on GitHub. You can always tell with a bug report if someone's doing something really intricate, right? Because like if someone files a bug, it's like, you're getting started tutorial, that command doesn't work. Like you can tell it's somebody who's not sort of, they're just getting started. And if you see a bug where it's like, you know, when I have a four-way join with like this kind of queries and like, this is the semantics I expected, but instead like the aggregation is like doing something and you read that, you go, what are you doing? Like, this is clearly you know, much more sophisticated than, than we anticipated. And it was really getting some of those bug reports, some of those sort of user feedback in our community Slack that, um, was indicative of production usage, right? That was truly magical. One of the hard things about sort of open source or source available is you actually don't get that much feedback when things are working, right? Like so people are going to be using this thing. And recently we've we've been getting more of that users who are telling us, yeah, no, we've been running it in production for three months of and everything's going great. Like we haven't said anything because we've never had a problem. And early on, you know, there were lots of bugs. And, uh, there was, so I think we had a good sign of, you know, who's actually using this because you were inevitably going to hit some bug and you were going to get involved in some way. And now it's sort of lost track and sort of that's its own fun moment. Maybe walk us back to the Hacker News launch that you just talked about. What did you learn from that launch? Because it sounded like you just made it open write a blog post and just magically become very popular. <laughs> but it, it was, I'm looking at your posts and also the Hacker News threads. What did you learn from that experience when just announcing the first time to more people about, hey, this is what we are. And the streaming data warehouse, I think that was the choice of words. That was the one, yeah. Back in the day, streaming without compromises. Lots of new concepts, obviously, for most people. What was the reactions and what did you learn from that experience? The first thing was sort of 
a great deal of happiness and sort of satisfaction that people care, right? Like the default is no one's going to care. And that's actually fine. If nobody cares in that first day, actually, that's fine. Like it's not, uh, nothing hinges on a single day of sort of launch. The second thing was like, there's a lot of people who were incredibly confused. They were like, what the hell is this thing? Why is this on, why, why is this on my Hacker News front page? Like, I can't understand any of this. And that was a good learning moment of positioning and broadening the appeal. I think not just us, a lot of people have this, uh, particularly in very technical products, have a tendency to speak in the language of the implementation rather than the language of the problem that it solves. We were no exception to that fault. One of my my hot takes is, you know, don't use the word streaming. You know, streaming is an implementation detail. You're speaking to the people who want low latency or fast. I made a joke that actually resonated pretty well. It was like, I would rather say SQL go fast than say anything about streaming because streaming is just the implementation of how the SQL go fast. We ideally want to enable a lot of people to build amazing applications who do not care that it's streaming. Now, of course, many people are going to care. And you certainly can have content because, you know, it's source available, it's you got blogs, you got technical documentation. And absolutely, you know, three clicks in into the like more detail expanse, like happy to go into streaming, but it's certainly not what the first thing that people should see. Yeah. And you even talked about how like recently the positioning and messaging has kind of changed a little bit on materialized. What's your process for thinking about how to position and like kind of the messaging to use? And even with Hacker News, it sounds like you did use the streaming language, but it still did really well. So how how has that kind of evolved and what's been your process for even figuring out what to call it and getting feedback from users on what kind of messages on what the capabilities are, like resonate with them? The first thing is, you know, clearly given that there was a lot of positive response, like it wasn't that the old messaging was incomprehensible. I just think it spoke to a specific, narrow power user persona. Right. And that's, of course, where you're going to start. That's where everything starts is with the core enthusiasts who care deeply. And the thing that has helped us over time is just speaking to our users, just asking them, what are you trying to do? And if anything, our users and our customers are the ones who have helped us broaden our perspective is we tend to you know, focus on there's plenty of folks here who are going to just, you know, keep talking on and on about sort of data flow planning and, and SQL parsing and all of those lovely details. But uh, the users actually, they're trying to get stuff done and listening to them describe what they are trying to do has been for us by far the healthiest way of uh, gaining the broader perspective. And so talking about your products, because definitely materialized cloud, right? That's one of your main core offering. It's often not obvious, I feel like, where do you want to start as a database product? Do you deploy into their customer on-prem for them to start and then later on move on to a managed service? Or do you start as a managed service, but then eventually go on to the other side? Which choice did you make and why? Materialized Cloud is a fully managed SaaS platform that we manage entirely. It does not live in the customer's cloud. It lives in our cloud. And the customers, they get all the benefits of that, which is we're the ones getting paged. We're the ones who upgrade the service. However, the source available component, you can download and run that anywhere, and our users do that. So our view is that's a pretty clear separation. If you want that control, by all means, there you go. But I don't think it really serves users well, or us either, to have a customer-managed cloud, us-managed cloud, source available offering, or maybe you know, an open core offering, an open core licensed on prep. Like, sure, we could have like six different SKUs, but uh, I actually think that would split our focus a lot. So we've, we've stayed pretty close to just the fully managed SaaS as the commercial side of the business and then the source available binary that you can run and deploy yourself. 
Awesome. So we wanted to make sure that we had a chance to talk about your journey as a founder. And before you started Materialize, you talked a bit about your experience at Cockroach before and you joined early, Series A. So what did you learn from your experience at Cockroach that you then brought into Materialize? Like best practices to scale, things that you might want to avoid? You did get to see a company at the earliest stages of before. Absolutely. I would not have been able to start Materialize without that experience. I think I learned a wealth of things there. And more importantly, I had the support of the Cockroach founders in starting Materialize. So Spencer, the CEO, wrote the very first check into Materialize. Peter, the CTO, wrote the second check into Materialize. The very first VC I pitched, I was still a Cockroach employee. I pitched him in the Cockroach offices. The intro was made by Spencer. Spencer is like, I'll wire the money. I'm like, can I wait until I'm off your payroll before I get sort of embarrassed? So they were that supportive in this. And I'm not sure I would have been able to do it without that. But what I really learned was it's going to take you a very long time to build a production-ready database. No one builds a production-ready database in a short amount of time. And I think the thing that the Cockroach founders and the early team did extremely well is they were very transparent in communicating the difficulties and where they were along the journey. They never oversold. They never said, and this is a better database than Oracle or, and this is, you know, production ready. In fact, they went to great lengths to talk about all the failures and all the various, you know, bogs and the journey to fixing those and the next release. And that built a tremendous amount of customer trust because if anything, the potential customers, the users, they're sick of being lied to by a hundred different vendors, right? And this is a really refreshing thing to be like, hey, we are 60% through in building a database that will fall over. And everyone's like, oh, that's interesting. Like, uh, finally an honest man. <laughs> and so, you know, comparing, or maybe like the cockroach journey is definitely super interesting. And one sort of parallel story is obviously it takes so long to build a production ready database. And therefore some people just hide and build and don't, not even just don't talk about it. Plus they don't never have anybody try it. That's and right. Until the world reveals and now you really go to market, you finally get into customers' hands. Is there anything you learned from the cockroach journey as well beyond uh, communication? Like how did it actually get user feedback while you're building a very right. complicated and the, database? Yeah, And that transparency, I think it goes beyond just like a blog post or two, right? It's the fact that it's sources on GitHub, there's open channels, I think open places where people can post bugs. Cause you learn a lot from like somebody posts a bug and then somebody else goes, I have that bug too. And uh, you know, the way that that momentum builds up to give you that clarity as to what's important and what's not. Cause oftentimes you'll get somebody who posts a bug and say, Hey, I couldn't do this. And you go, yeah, that's broken. They're like, okay, I'll do this other thing. And you're like, okay, well maybe we should just document that people should do the other thing from the get go rather than building some feature that may take a lot of time to actually build. So it really helps you with your prioritization to have these users use it. And I think the most important thing is to just play straight with everyone and say, Hey, this is a beta database. This is where we intend to go. We're definitely going to build this to production readiness, but we're not there yet. Otherwise there's this tension where because you need feedback, but you're embarrassed to put out a beta product, you call it 1.0 and it's not really 1.0. And then people's expectations are completely different when you say 1.0, right? So Materialize is not 1.0 today. We have production customers, we have production users. Materialize serves users who are using services that are running in production today. But you know, we hold ourselves to an extremely high bar or what we were willing to call 1.0. And I think that's refreshing from the eyes of the users because they're using us in use cases where they 
in a fully informed way are making the decision that it's okay if materialized crashes, right? So we're not running in a tier zero, somebody's night is getting ruined if we crash at 3 a.m. use case. What was the biggest learnings you personally have through starting this company? What surprises you and what are like the biggest challenges you really needed to like, or growth areas really need to learn along the way as being a CEO of a company like this? The biggest shift has been, you know, I was an engineer. I was before that a PhD student in computer science. It was very technical and I am the non-technical founder of Materialize, right? So I haven't written a single line of code in the code base. I have some commits to the repository. It's all readme.md. Those are the most that uh, I've, I've contributed. So I've had to learn a lot of skills. I think the surprising thing is I enjoy that a lot. I think I didn't realize how much I would enjoy all of the complex non-technical aspects of the job. I don't think I could have predicted that or generally anyone could have predicted how that transition would go. It's hard for me to say why or why not. It just so turns out that I've really enjoyed all the other aspects of it, particularly recruiting and hiring and spending a lot of time with people. I would not have pegged myself for being a people person, but I have enjoyed that a lot. And we love to close out on advice for other founders or just things that you really wish that you knew or were told right when you were starting out. Best advice I can give to someone looking to start a company is work at a very well-run company for at least a couple of years. I don't think I would have known what to do in several different scenarios without just sort of putting on my what would Spencer do hat and sort of thinking it through from that perspective. There's so many little micro decisions that you make that are based off of the experience that you've had. So I would select very much for working at a company that was small enough. I don't think it needs to be sort of series A or it could be a series B, series C company, right around 100 people or 200 people or less. But one that has good people, good people who you know will be rooting for your success later from a genuine place of goodwill and not getting mad that you're leaving, right? We certainly know that there's definitely people on companies that have the opposite culture where if you told them you're starting a company, like your email is going to be cut off within 15 minutes and no one's ever going to speak to you again. And so choose a company that cares about you as a person and is willing to nurture your career and then learn. One thing that I did at Cockroach, I think that not everyone did was it was a very transparent culture internally and you could read everything that all the other departments are. And I was a sort of a voracious learner of all these other things. Like what's the marketing plan? Well, what's the, what is the board saying? Like, you know, what's the, I cared about all of these things and they served me well after I started with Charles. Not everyone sort of does that. They sort of stay in their zone and, you know, there's also going to be things that you don't actually have an inherent interest in, but probably worth spending some time reading through just in the context. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic advice to end on. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. 